Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Happy Independence Day week to those of you in the United States. Uh, if you're not in the United States, you may have noticed it's been very quiet here in the U.S. because uh, the holiday falls in the middle of the week this week. Uh, so we are going to kind of take a break from the news cycle and share two recent interviews that Richard and Joanna have done. Um, first up, we're going to hear Richard's conversation with Deborah Granick, who is the director. Well, actually, Richard, you just start us from there. Yeah, Deborah Granick wrote and directed this movie called Leave No Trace. Uh, she made Winter's Bone back in 2010. That's how most people kind of became aware of her, though she had a previous Sundance hit called Down to the Bone uh, in 2004. Uh, but yeah, Leave No Trace was at Sundance and Cannes. It's a really, really great movie with ben, starring Ben Foster and this new Newcomer Thomasin McKenzie. So I talked to her about her approach to filmmaking, her approach to casting, because she's such a good kind of star maker between this girl and Jennifer Lawrence and Vera Farmiga. Yeah, no pressure on Thomasin McKenzie to be the new Jennifer right? Lawrence. Yeah, I mean, but she really, I mean, she's she's great in the movie. And and Deborah's a really interesting person. She has a really interesting way of talking about uh, her process and her sort of philosophy for film. So that's the conversation, and you can listen to it now. Well, I'm sitting here across the table from Deborah Granick. Deborah, thank you so much for being here. Uh, my pleasure. I saw Leave No Trace at Sundance, and I mean, it's a beautiful movie, but I think also I was just like in this sort of mountainy mood where I just, it really, really affected me. And um, so it's really exciting to get to talk to you about it. How was your time with it at Sundance and then at Cannes? Did you go to Cannes with? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Had you done that festival before? No. What was your experience there? We were in this very beautiful section called the Director's Fortnight. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we had the opportunity to see films from around the world that were really provoking and beautiful things that you have not, not seen. Places, cities, villages, people, life choices. And so on some level, it was like this fertile culture zone yeah. where we just got to enjoy cinema in a big way. And, and the fact that our film was a part of that collection of, of films being presented meant a lot to us. And I also really enjoyed conversations with filmmakers from other places and all in all yeah. felt really thrilled about the, what the fortnight is and they were celebrating. I'll just add this cause it was really bolstering on the um, spiritual level. They were celebrating the 50 year anniversary of the fortnight and the fortnight had been, I didn't know the history. It had been this um, sort of renegade, disruption of Cannes as in terms of business as usual 50 years ago yeah. uh, some of the more the, the edgy filmmakers that were in Europe at the time said we need to make a cultural incursion we need to show up here and have also other kinds of cinema displayed it can't just be 
the big product from the big studios in the in, in all the countries. You know, yeah. it has to be some room, seed some room to alternatives. Yeah, and you feel that presence there of the Fortnite and the Critics Week. Like most of the, the great films I saw at Cannes this year, frankly, were in those two sidebar categories. So, and your movie and your films in general are telling very American stories about certain aspects of American life. I'm curious, what was the reaction between Sundance, where it's largely American festival, and then Cannes, where it's people from all over the world, largely Europe? Were the reactions different in any noticeable way? Or did people kind of relate to the film all, you know, uh, the same kind of emotional register? Well, it's interesting. In order to get a calibration for that, I feel like the discussions and the Q&A have to be a little bit more in depth. And I think I'll know that deeper this fall. Mm-hmm. Like uh, a festival where I've always gotten real feedback, real dialogue is, is in Vienna, the Viennale. For whatever reason, maybe the Q&A space is, is longer, you know, mm-hmm. and so the discussions can actually go deeper. And so I've actually learned things and that I've infused in f- subsequent films when, you know, after after being in Vienna. And the reason I'm saying this is because in Cannes, it's a very, it's a very celebratory atmosphere. And there's a very brief discussion, mm-hmm. but I don't have this intense recollection of hearing from a typical cinema goer or art house appreciator in Europe. I I definitely had conversations with, with um, journalists, foreign Mm -hmm. foreign journalists that were, I got, I got an indication they were really reading the themes. Yeah. It takes a long time to actually get specifics from people last, uh, the night before last I was in Woodstock, New York. Mm -hmm. And that Q and A I think was 45 minutes or, or an hour maybe. And that was a discussion, and I really started to get a sense of what people were reading in it, what they wanted to extrude from it. Mm-hmm. But I guess my point here is that the conversation has to be beyond a few general questions about the film or filmmaking to know what people are getting out of it. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. I yeah. think that. Um, and, well, maybe it's something about I don't know Viennese Cafe Society just kind of <laughs> <laughs> makes some sense that there would be good conversation there. But Woodstock also, I mean, so Leave No Trace is about maybe something that people in Woodstock can relate to in some way, where someone who is kind of decided to live outside the norm of what we would kind of describe as a you know typical American life, and that's been reflected in your films in the past, uh, whether it's documentary or, or narrative feature. So, what about this particular story? It's based on a book. How did you find it? And w- was it something you were looking for? Or did it kind of just hit you when, you know, just in, in, in your reading? I'm just curious about your process about how you decide to make a film about something. In this situation, the book was brought to my attention by two New York producers, mm-hmm. Linda Reisman and Ann Harrison. And they had um, really loved this book and were out there supporting it, connected with the author. And were trying to hook up uh, other creatives to join the party really you know and I read the book and I said this is a feasible film and it, it, it already made me filled with wonder right because I'm, I'm who are they why are they doing this how are they undetected why would people choose to be undetected what will come of them you know, that flurry of questions plus the notion that this film is set in a very photogenic situation which yeah. is the temperate the Pacific Northwest temperate rainforest so you know I looked at this kind of I want to say package of ingredients maybe less crass elements mm-hmm. <laughs> filmic element elements and said i think this would work and it's within it's within range you know this film didn't need bells and whistles it didn't need uh rarefied equipment to make it it could be made in the way i like to work which is a very streamlined and i, I dare say you know humble process 
Yeah. I like that word feasible. Um, I think that's a, a practical and interesting way to look at it. And, you know, it obviously has bearing in, in your creative process, but also, you know, the filmmaking business. And I was speaking with Kelly Reichardt a couple years ago, I think, about uh, certain women. And and she was talking about the difficulties of getting a film made. And, and you know, you, you had a documentary in 2014 and before that, Winter's Bone in 2010. So it's been a number of years since you've done a narrative feature. So I'm curious, like, what your experience on that end of things has been. Do you see... What are the difficulties? What are the, you know, has it gotten better in any way? There are these two factors that independent filmmakers look at all the time when it comes to financing. One is how films are traditionally financed and what gets financed. So subject matters that are deemed not intrinsically commercial. And and, and some and that, that, that definition contracts and expands. So at times what is deemed commercial is, is um, you know what I call it, the cycle of bloodlust. You know what is what is commercial is very high stakes on the threat of violence, or the heist, or the you know even if it's looking at a very high stakes financial crisis or high stakes rescue. Um, and so when that cycle is in play and it's really robust and sort of ubiquitous, being really um, reinforced by what's on television. It, it becomes harder to find space for a film that doesn't have those ingredients. You know, I think one thing that we struggle over the last thousands of years is that, you know, Homo sapiens are very are very prone to habituation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think like other creatures, and so once habituated to this, it becomes harder. If you're expecting a jolt every couple seconds, and you're expecting a score that rams it into you, you know, yanks your leash and tells you where to be emotionally. If this becomes the sort of the ubiquitous diet, it becomes harder to make a quiet film, for example. You know, it, it makes it makes it harder to um, find a way to put out minimalist score. Mm-hmm. The lives of ordinary Americans somehow doesn't seem interesting. And then, of course, there's the real reality when when there are financial crises, it becomes harder to see everyday life actually because you're looking for other kinds of entertainment. Uh, when rent is due, who would not want to have a long string? Right. <laughs> to hang from a really tall building and not have to worry about rent, you know. Right. So rent is dreary, and superpowers are very enticing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's how it feels that right now. You know, yeah. so the other part of that equation is being presented with a, with a singular way to finance, which is that you find a very short list of people who are deemed financeable actors. As if they have a price tank dangling for their neck, you know, tier one, tier two of value. Very hard, actually, you know, given that we were a country that practiced that, you know, at other times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, value, well, we, we always have, but in a really overt way, the idea that, you know, who's worth this much? Who's worth that? Um, so if you opt out of that, sort of the sort of trafficking of human stardom or something, yeah. um, it becomes also... Uh, really like what's oh then you've got to find a weird a kind of a freakazoid financer you know someone <laughs> right. who's into slow returns and who can actually take the risk to say like oh let's let's maybe introduce some new actors mm-hmm. that is statistically very rare that we're talking about a different kind of one percent we're talking about one percent of a financier that goes against the grain right yeah, but they are out there. I they mean, are you know, out there. Yeah, yeah. you just got to find them. I'm glad you brought up casting because uh, I don't know how you see it, but from my point of view, you have a real 
genius for casting. I mean, you um, gave Vera Farmiga a really breakout role in Down to the Bone, obviously Jennifer Lawrence in Winter's Bone, and now Thomas and Mackenzie, who is just this striking. And she'd been on television in New Zealand, right? And, and yes. this is her first kind of bigger American thing, certainly. Um, uh, how did you find her? When do, you, when do you know that you have the right person for the role? Um, is there a sort of process you follow or is it just kind of, you know, different for each project? No, I definitely follow a process. And the process involves a discussion really outside of the script. I mean, it starts with the script in the, in the novel or whatever the source material is, and then quickly has to go into a, a different kind of discussion, which is sort of willingness being amenable, being open to a collaborative process, being open to certain kinds of training or exposure to certain real environments that, that would be indispensable for the character to have kind of a, a deep sense of. And Tom was allowing me to check that list. If you know, We were communicating. She's from New Zealand, so we were communicating by Skype, and that was unnerving on, on some level. It's, it's, a, it's an odd prospect to work very in-depth with someone that you don't, you know, you're not in the room with at first. But she provided a lot of material. She also was very willing to do some um, improvs based on the discussion we had. And so she was showing me some additional work. And those were just solid offerings that, that this would be fruitful. And and she was just had a, also a very attractive personality, very warm and open person. So therefore, sometimes that prospect of talking to someone you've never met a lot, you know, across great distance is intimidating sure. for me. And you know, she made it easier. <laughs> That's a good sign. Yeah, I mean, she has this kind of preternatural just like poise about her, you know. She just seems wise beyond her years, I guess, you know. And I'm, I'm also curious in terms of putting the cast together. Um, I mean, she's at the center, but also so Ben Foster is there yes. as her father. And and they have such a complicated, nuanced, and most importantly to this film, credible relationship. And when do you start introducing Ben Foster into that equation? And, and how do you three then kind of get to where what we see on film is there? So I think for Ben and Tom to do their work together, they had to be given this like almost like I want to say sequestered space. They were um, they were shown the campsite that they would be dwelling in and we would be filming in, and they got to be there by themselves. And that was after they had done some skills training with a masterful outdoor survival skills trainer, uh, Nicola Pellian, who's sort of revered in the Pacific Northwest because she was able to live 45 days with two tools. You know, she was one of these people that brings it to a very awe-inspiring art form. You know, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to be that resourceful and to understand the natural world at that level to function like that? And uh, Ben was very turned on by that, as was Tom. And so so Nicole gave them a certain skill set. They practiced the different things. They had these knives that they had never been introduced to they knew how to you know use them safely and so just to be in that site and for them to you know start using their tools light their fires eat a meal they ate a meal together um that they cooked you know with their new skills and yeah I've, there's very lyrical rehearsal footage that we've just uncovered that we had kind of forgotten that we'd done just on a handy cam you know just some preliminary looking about what it would like you know after they had time alone they invited us you know like it's okay come on in you know um and tom brought this lovely um, maori uh, greeting that that um her mom had taught to her that is i guess something that new zealand children and non-maori people learn Mm -hmm. or appreciate and that was a greeting that they could do before scenes and it was a it was a way to be um 
intimate, but in a very non-traditional way, you know, just it involves putting foreheads together and just being still for a minute. I think Ben really relished that too. It, was, it ended up being something that um, was effective in, in their pair bonding, if you will. Yeah. That shines through on screen. You know, I think that the bond of knowing something with one other person that maybe no one else around them knows, you know, that, that really creates a sort of familiarity that the film um, captures really well. Uh, and in terms of capturing things, um, we're at an odd time in America, and we're at a time when, depending on who you talk to, uh, you know, we are stratified to a point that we can never be reconciled, we can never be a, an American people again, you know, um, there's, there's geographic difference, there's obviously economic difference, there's racial difference. When In this particular case, we're talking about people living on the fringes of society, not just Tom and Ben's characters, but, you know, on their kind of odyssey, they meet other people who are living in various states of, you know, griddedness, let's say. Um, how do you, you know, you're a coastal dwelling, you know, filmmaker, how do you approach these worlds, not just in um, Leave No Trace, but also Winter's Bone, also Down to the Bone, also uh, the documentary? Um, how do you approach these worlds in a way that is respectful while also illuminating in a way because your films really do that and i'm curious if you see that as part of your work or if it's maybe just something a kind of compassion that comes innately to you Mm. i think when faced with differences amidst all of us that sometimes it can be intimidating or or alienating or one of the actions that anyone can perform that that was taught to me which is to look for the and so the and is where we find our commonality. No, no, you know, no surprise that that word would would require that, right? So, someone may live somewhere, and all around them, a view is held, and for some reason, they don't have that view, or they think differently. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about many different situations where the and upends or surprises us, and then then that leaves space for attraction, like. You know, I'm attracted to how you survive. Once I've heard about this and, you know, so um, you may have different views about firearms and the Second Amendment than I hold. And you also care about this, this, and this, which I also care about. Or you've witnessed this, this, which makes me feel something. So the and is the key to knowing that most likely there's not a hundred percent alienation between people. But, you know, I feel like um, humiliation is at the core of a lot of what we go through economically, that huge amount of people are very humiliated and horrified that the most essential agreement of a industrial capitalized country, a capitalist country would, would, would makes, which is that should you toil 40 hours a week, you would be able to live on it. That was, that was just the, the most, almost, I want to say, rock-bottom bedrock. And when that was dissolved, when that was breached, when yet another cycle of corporate myopia and greed, you know, sort of engulfs an entire economic, global economic system, uh, people are left smarting, horrified, humiliated, caught out, shat on, you know, and, um, and to... It takes time for the dialogue to open up to some of the things, you know, what does that person really want and need? How would they get it? 
what would that look like and what you know and and so we're trying to get pieces of that portrait basically you don't have to pave the way to compassion that is a direct link to compassion because most people would like other people to get what they need when it doesn't exceed what they need you know that's different than generation wealth or that's different than excess and 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 ostentatious and 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 egregious you know overage i think that that this film does that so well it, it's such a i'm i'm curious have you heard from anyone well whether it's someone who has lived in that kind of off-the-grid way or, in the case of Ben Foster's character, has been suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, which we are sort of, it's intimated he's suffering from in the film, um, which very subtly, which I appreciated. Um, have you heard from anyone sort of who said that the film felt reflective of them or that it helped them in any way or do not see that as the film's sort of ultimate job? As a society, we do look for opportunities to talk about a, a kind of mysterious, potent uh, psychiatric and and emotional matrix such as PTS or PTSD. It's one of those uh, thunderous sort of neurochemical and and it relates to the heart as well. So you know the two brains, if you will, um, and it has been coursing through the, all of human history. And yet, you know, it feels like just you know every generation feels like it's just finding the words for it. Um, and so I do think that when when written material or filmed material um, talks about it or alludes to it, I think it's sometimes a very big relief for a lot of people. I think m- many filmmakers, I, I feel this way, that uh, you know, films don't usually give any answers, but they perhaps allow discussion or a resonance or a little, uh, you know, I don't know, je ne sais quoi, you know, like a little bit of a, a, a bell goes off or a tingle or a... Or maybe even just the the endorphins that are released when we experience compassion. Yeah, because I think you know people talk about representational film and or, you know like I'm thinking about like Love Simon and like seeing like a gay teen love story and what that meant to me and whatever. You know, it doesn't mean that I'm fixed or solved or understood in any full way. It's just like you get that kind of frisson of like connection. Yes, I guess is what yes. that is. I think. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. So in doing this film. I assume you're not living exactly as they're living while you're on location, but what were the sort of particular technical hardships of it? Because like you said, it's a feasible movie, but, but you're in the temperate rainforest and it's cold and it's wet and it's, you know, far from civilization at times. Like what was difficult about it? Well, I would say that one thing that did mollify the difficulties was the the high functioning of the Oregon crew in, in terms of understanding precipitation and how to work within it and, and, and around it and get drenched by it, get, get moist. Um, and they, they helped the, the outsiders, people from other parts of the country that weren't versed in this. And there are techniques, which was extremely uh, emboldening because I felt like, oh, something I associate with stopping the show or being problematic was no longer a problem. So I don't want to, you know, whitewash the whole thing you do get cold, of course, and you and the wetter you get, the colder you get. So that that all plays, and those are long days. But I can't stress enough what it's like for a city person to have an opportunity to work day in and day out, just amidst things that have a soft form and different patterns. You know, given the grid that we that 
metropolitan people live with, right? That, and the gray and the beige and the dark wet cement and the colors, our palette. So, you know, to, to work only with 99 shades of green, uh, it felt like somehow my circuitry got renewed. It's arduous, but the fact that it's within a beautiful space was its own medicine. And I don't mean to be hokey around that. I just mean that I, I felt that from crew members, especially those who are not jaded about Oregon's forests. I would say we had a hall, you know, we had to bring things in. We were, this was not the kind of shoot where you take big vehicles and trample over the forest. I had to be mindful, you know, I had to be mindful of what the crew could do and, and what would not deplete them. And uh, I would say, you know, the hardships are really around the, the classics of filmmaking, how long the day is and what happens when that day starts to run short and brutal choices have to be made about what to lob off a scene or what to delete and or to to leave a scene where you don't know whether you really got it you know you walk away it's it's a funny feeling it's like uh you know sometimes i i would know my head was sort of bowed i'm like god i don't know if i got it you know or if we got it you know and and then you go into like later and you go to editing and you find that you did get it or you got something that you didn't expect to i mean because um, once once you're confronted with all that raw footage, does the finished product end up looking like what you thought it would, or is it? I mean, I'm just sort of curious about that because I, yeah. I mean, I like I know when I write, you know, you know, sometimes I'll have to change the first paragraph of a review or something because I ended up going a different direction or something. Is that is that oh, true of your experience? Oh, that is so true of the experience of editing. I yes, well, editing for for text and I guess the verb edit, you know, the the active state of editing is to acknowledge that the flow of ideas can flow in many orders and and the flow of a story even. You know, when a narrative has a very, I, I want to say, kind of marked and map-like trajectory such as this film, it can't be in any order. But certainly the way the looks happen in a scene and um, how it where, where it stops can be, you know, tried out many different permutations and certainly the opening of a film is always hard to pull off because you're trying to do a whole lot at the opening you're trying to give quite a few elements of given circumstance to make it possible for the person to enter the story and we took a big risk with this film you know there's there was issues there and there will be always the first 15 minutes of this film who what you know there's um the fact that the first section of the film takes place only in the forest you know of course, it's going to engender, and yet I, you know, there was I didn't see my way out of this. Is it now? Was it past? Is it post? A lot, you know. People people ask, is it, you know, post apocalypse? You know, they. Well, we're so conditioned. Speaking about what we get used to, post apocalyptic stories are sort of we just kind of expect that nowadays. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. And so the setup for this film, we had to try a whole lot of things, just to, to make sure that we weren't, um, sort of setting people off on a, on a note of frustration. That's no good. You know, it's like. Ex- you know, I definitely believe that um, access to the film, to the story, coming in, having clues to work with is, you know, I want to be a, a provider, a giver. You know, I, I, it's not like, ooh, try to catch up. Ooh, you know, 
Yeah. This film's going to be elusive and you're not going to understand it. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting you bring that up because I, something that, you know, I'm not going to name names, but something that can bother me sometimes at a festival like Sundance is like all of this deliberately alienating, ambiguous, we don't, we don't have an ending, we don't, you know, but that's kind of the art of it. And there can be absolute art in that. But something that I really liked or uh, loved about Leave No Trace, and I don't want to spoil anything, but like the movie is not overly dramatic or sentimental but it's not afraid to be emotional to have a sort of almost catharsis you know sort of it tugs at the heart um was that important to you or do you with this film or do you think that was just innate to the story um both It, it definitely was innate to the story and and as you say so astutely it is important in a film that doesn't have a plot that has um these very um kind of i want to say formidable reversals and 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 traditionally suspenseful moments to understand that it's something that Sam Fuller used to talk about which I always appreciated it can be more like anatomical and almost like I want to say scientific to to see the idea of what a bullet does to a a metal bullet right it it enters the body and either the person survives it or doesn't or is gravely injured, or is not, What you know? but experiences pain no matter what. We can't know that pain unless we've been shot on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, we're overexposed to that kind of pain. So he talked about the bullet of emotion. To cleave yourself from someone or to worry about someone, the bullet doesn't solve it. It doesn't go in and out or lodge itself. It, well, it, it lodges itself. That's what, I guess that's the point. It lodges itself, but there's not a surgical removal. It takes processing in, in, in your heart and in, in, in your kind of psychiatric resources and to, you know, make adjustments for how you're going to live after something emotional or live through something or, may, or allow something to happen. Keep your heart open. You know, um, I, I love that someone like Sam Fuller would call that out and try to make us understand that that's another way for a film to provide uh, intensity that it isn't just the, the woundable body, the woundable flesh. You know, we can be wounded or resilient in different ways. We can be stoic, and but they often are matters of, of the heart and attachment, longing, those kinds of things. I think someone could describe that as sort of the softer things in a movie. And, and I think that some filmmakers are scared of that stuff because it seems sentimental or manipulative and, or whatever. And I don't think they are, you know, and I, I think that your film displays that, like that you can have a father-daughter story that uh, is heart-wrenching and sweet and in kind of equal measure and that uh, it can still be independent and interesting and still play at Sundance and can. You know, I think that there's a kind of rigid mindset about what kind of films are art films and what kind of films are this or that, you know? And so it's nice to see this movie blend a lot of those tropes together in such a successful way. Now, I, I hate to ask this because, you know, you're still in this movie, but um, are you now already in the process of thinking about what's next or is that not how you work? Do you really want to be done, done with this before? Oh, no. I mean, today I'm trying to keep my seatbelt on because I really need to be getting my crew together because something happened in the documentary that we're filming and uh, and it was unexpected and it's actually really super bad and hard. You know, it's a, it's it's interesting that just this driving here, I would get a text that says, you know, please call. And um, yeah, this the documentary that we've been working on 
throughout the, the Leave No Trace period, especially when when it took a minute to get the financing for Leave No Trace, I almost used that as a reprieve. I was like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. There's a delay because I actually need to keep working on this documentary here in New York. Mm-hmm. I really want to bring that to fruition. And um, right now I'm in a little bit of an overwhelmed state because the topic and the details of, of the men's lives that we're making a portrait of just so exceed our ability to to um, depict, to <laughs> gather, record, you know, their lives are infinitely rich and what you can record or chronicle is basically such a tiny fraction. I'm, I'm in a weird bang my head against the wall syndrome where I'm like a lot of shoulda, woulda, coulda, a lot of late nights staring at the ceiling saying, what would it take for me to not miss so many of their of their moments, you know? Mm-hmm, right. Short of filming in 24 hours a day, or, you know, or, yeah. yeah. Do you have anything that you do to kind of, I mean, obviously you're deeply invested in these films. I mean, a documentary in particular, because these are real lives that you're entering into in a way. Um, do you have anything that you do sort of personally to kind of take yourself out of filmmaking mode? Like, do you just go walk around the city? Do you, I don't, I don't know, do you have any sort of tricks to kind of snap out of it for a little bit, just to give yourself a little reprieve? Oh, I do. I do. Um, they haven't, I haven't been able to utilize those resources most, re- you know, in a while. So, um, I need to recover some of them. Yesterday, the, um, I was riding with a, a driver who, uh, practices TM and I just really, he made my day and I was like, oh my God, I, how many years have I thought about that? But he, he was he just sold me so quickly you know he's said takes care of my road rage i'm able to do my job really well i'm able to be contemplative and <laughs> so i'm gonna try again i i mean i even tried it was so cheesy but i even tried like an app oh no i've heard I, yeah. someone was just telling me about their transcendental meditation app and they were that they love it so much yeah. i know but i've I this is goes back years ago. I just said you you know you can't strap on Buddhism. Come on, you know, or, or Eastern thinking. You gotta you gotta earn it. You can't just no. you can't just plug and play. I mean, no way. <laughs> Not if other people spent five thousand years developing the thoughts, you know. But the fact is, um, my this is going to sound really Pollyanna, but I have to say, one of my tropes is to, you know, list something every day that was undeniably delightful. And usually it's the farmer's market. Sure. Usually it ends up there. So I will tell you one way that I have sometimes um, done sort of therapeutic and medicinal uh, deacceleration that you just asked about is to walk in one of the green markets kind of slowly and honestly just let my eyes go up and down the carrot, the pepper, the zucchini, the melon, and move on to the crusty bread, the cheese. <laughs> and just remember that like humans can do agriculture and what a beautiful thing and that farmers are toiling and, and, and that New York is productive and can make agriculture happen and that old grains are being discovered and then people cook really well now and people love food and they'll pay for food and, the, the, you know, just that this was revived you know, after we almost were going to have bags that were like similar to what NASA puts on space flights, you know, yeah. that was sort of like the big revelation of my childhood. Like, oh, you could just boil this whole cheesy substance in a bag and look where we got to. We, we, we rolled it back. Yeah. So, you know, the Luddite in me had like a, 
you know, emotional, mental erection, basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about an erection, but emotional, emotional and mental something uh, people will get if they go see Leave No Trace. And I'm really happy that you were able to stop by and talk about it. Um, I think it's such a special film. You know, I hope the documentary goes well. I can't wait to see what you do next. Deborah Granick, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So now, Joanna, we are going to share a conversation that you had with Kay Cannon, who is the director of the film that I believe is referred to as Your Beloved Blockers. That's the official Blu-ray title, right? Yeah, My Beloved Blockers. Yeah. <laughs> Kay Cannon is so great. She you know, she directed Blockers. Uh, she wrote Pitch Perfect. She worked on 30 Rock. She's been around a while. And it was great to talk to her because I got to talk to her before the movie came out. And then this was a, sort of a follow-up conversation to sort of check in with her about anticipation versus payoff. This idea that some studio comedies, especially female-driven ones, are getting um, interesting second life on home video. And that's, you know, that's something that we talked about. And also just why award season doesn't take comedies as seriously as as maybe they should. And she's she's just like a fascinating, hilarious woman. It was great to talk to her. And Blockers is available now for people like me who didn't see it in theaters. Uh, it's, it's out, right? Uh, yeah, it was released on uh, Blu-ray and streaming on July 3rd. We are joined today by Kay Cannon. Kay, thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Well, I wanted to kick off because, you know, because this is an award season podcast, I want to ask you some awards-based questions uh, as, a, as an award winner yourself. What do you think it is about the genre of comedy, comedy films specifically, that uh, make it such a challenge for awards bodies to, to recognize um, achievements in that area? You know, I feel like it's because comedy just gets taken for granted, I think. It seems like if comedy is done well and people laugh a ton and they think it's awesome, it looks easy. Mm-hmm. When in fact, it's like incredibly difficult to do. It's so hard to do. But but I think most people, but this wouldn't include like those, you know, the voters because they, they're in the business and they, they probably know better but like you know most people think they're really funny (laughs) like and so like especially nowadays like as we as we advance with social media and whatever you like you know people are telling jokes they're telling lots and lots of jokes (laughs) and so I think that we just get like put into this box of just like because it's light because it makes people feel good because we're laughing that that it's easy to do and and that it doesn't carry the same amount of weight when in fact it's difficult to do and if you've got a comedy that's poorly done um you kind of get lumped into like you start starts to become like oh well, it's really great for a comedy you know like because right. when you see a really bad comedy it's bad and it leaves a bad taste in your mouth and you kind of think that like you know it gets put into this like it's that was a ridiculous movie when you you know die like that um where it doesn't resonate with audiences so um, I just, I, I don't know, just drama just always seems to get more, uh, you know, like it, it, it just doesn't feel cheap. I think sometimes maybe comedy feels cheap and so people don't vote for it. I feel like there's been, um, you know, with the Academy of Motion Pictures, with their recent effort to expand who they consider worthy to be part of the voting body, I feel like we're seeing actually a lot more comedians introduced into the voting body. And so I'm wondering if a win for a Jordan Peele or just the inclusion of like Jordan Peele in the voting body means like, do you feel like maybe in the future, the Oscars won't be so stuffy when it comes to comedy? I mean, I so hope so 
because um, I'm so happy Jordan won for a thousand reasons. But I remember people in the voting academy uh, kind of poo-pooing his genre of like, you know, of uh, Get Out being, you know, the the horror genre, um, not getting a lot of love. It gets probably about the same, maybe just a little bit more um, love than comedies do. You really have to change the um, the makeup of the voters to get to include all different kinds of things that people like, so that it doesn't become so so stuffy. I, I I really hope that happens. I think there's also something like I'm really proud of blockers, and I think that it, I think it surprised people, and I think it carried messages that are so pertinent to what's happening in a society today, but it's also called blockers. And I think there's <laughs> something that with a rooster on top, I, I hope that voters would be like, I, I'm not, and I'm not talking about the Academy uh, uh, for Oscars, but like, you know, for other awards or whatever, that I hope that they're like excited to vote for something that's called blockers as opposed to dismissing it, um, you know, for being just this like rated R raunchy comedy or whatever. Well, something that I think I've talked to you about before is this idea of um, comedy as sort of a way of lowering defenses and audiences. Like you're you're in a you're in a movie theater, you're laughing, you're going along, you're kind of relaxed. And so some of the of this messaging, like some of the really progressive messaging that's in blockers, or some of the emotional messaging that's in blockers, can sort of sneak in when your defenses are down because you think you're sort of just laughing at a at, at a slapstick bit or or whatever it is, and then and then you come in. Uh, in a lot of your work, Kay, you come in with with something more incisive to say. Is that an overlooked power of comedy? <laughs> it's my special superpower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like from the beginning of time, like comedy has been the way to sneak in change. Or if it's, even if it's a musical, and certainly dramas. I mean, every everything that's like good, like if something is good, if something is great, like it will resonate with people, and and you'll learn about someone else's story, and then you'll change or evolve or or, or whatnot, or it'll affect you in a, in a real positive way. I like, you know, I watched the Tonys last night, and and a lot of people who won awards had that sentiment of just like this is so it's so great to be able to like you know entertain people, and then also you know, represent people at the same time and show different stories. I'm, I love hearing that these, the sort of messaging without being too preachy, like sneaks in. And I think comedy is like the best way to do that because when it's dramatic or when it's like, you know, you go on Twitter for two seconds and it's just like, you know, it's, it's a lot of people yelling at each other and you're just not going to break down those walls unless, you get somebody smiling or relaxing or sort of taking a deep breath and lightening up the situation. You know, the, the last time I talked to you was before, shortly before release. And um, even at that point, because of early screenings at either South by Southwest Film Festival or, you know, private screenings that you had held, you had gotten some feedback already from audiences. But what it, what has it been like? I mean, specifically on some of these progressive issues and representation issues that blockers handle so beautifully. Like, what has it been like uh, for you to get even more feedback from the general audience? You know, what was so great is that I've had many people um, either come up to me personally or just through social media talk about the coming out story of uh, Gideon Edlon's character, Sam. And I've had um, women say to me, man, it was so great to see that 
on the big screen and and I wish I'd had this movie when I was, and I, I think I'm, when we last talked, there had been somebody who had said this at South by, I wish I had this movie when I was in high school. I've had like, you know, teenagers say to me, I was able to come out after seeing the movie because I felt comfortable in doing so. But a couple of things that happened to me personally that I, uh, that I am pretty happy about <laughs> is my mom uh, she is, uh, 79 years old. She's, you know, so like, I, I like to say like a nearly 80 year old woman and she's Catholic. Like she's pretty hardcore Catholic. And, uh, she was not going to see the movie because of the, uh, subject matter. And then she came out to California and she's like, I'll go see it. And we went and saw it together. Oh my gosh. And yeah, she laughed. She laughed a lot. Like even at like dick jokes, like she like, she was, it was so fun to see, to watch her laughing at stuff. And also, you know, there weren't, there weren't a ton, like we went super late on a Sunday night or something like that. There weren't a ton of people and maybe there was like 40 or something like that in the, on the audience. And, um, she was really like, she was really enjoying herself and she was like pretty proud. And then afterwards I, I was like, so what'd you think? <laughs> and she's like, it's technically fantastic. <laughs> but then she was like, um, you know, but you know, I do I wish that, that the daughters, you know, weren't having sex, you know? And then she's like, because it's a sin, Catherine, you know, like, you know, like she was really still like had her, her beliefs and her passions and her convictions and all of that. So great. But it was so awesome to see her like laughing and to kind of um, hear the conversations that, that this movie kind of would spark, you know, and to see things in it in a different way. And then my brother and, and his daughter who is 16, they, and I, I was able to like hear a conversation between the two of them where she was like, there's a double standard between me and my brother, you know, like, it was so great. I was like, oh, these are the conversations I, I want to be happening. <laughs> <laughs> there are people, I think, who didn't quite know what to expect from blockers in the theater, um, given the the way it was marketed and just sort of the expectations of just, the, as you say, the word blockers with a rooster in front of it. Um, but something that I've been so heartened by is the way in which certain comedies are finding even broader audiences uh, when they when they get released at home. There's something obviously so lovely yeah. about being in a theater and laughing along with everyone in comedy is such a good communal experience. But even with like, you know, your other film Pitch Perfect, the first Pitch Perfect film really exploded when it hit home video. And the same is true. I can't even say home video anymore. That's an outdated term. Um, and then, um, <laughs> you know, and the same, the same I think is recently true of like something like Game Night where it's hitting streaming and people are discovering it and they're like, oh my God, this is really fun. I didn't know. And so um, I'm just wondering sort of what your your hopes and expectations are for, for blockers as it hits uh, DVD, Blu-ray streaming, VOD, all of those. Yeah, because like blockers did well in the theaters, but not but the same way that like Pitch Perfect did well in the theaters. It's like it, it made money. It, you know, like it, it, it had a really solid opening weekend. Um, it had a little bit of legs, but it also it was tough. I mean, it was just like between a quiet place and Avengers and Deadpool tool. Like, like there was just, it was just like, bam, 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 bam. Um, um, and people have, you know, either saved up enough money or only have enough money to go see one movie. And that, and you know, that it's not going to be uh, the comedy, the experience they want is, are these big, bigger um, movies um, with these 
and stuff like that. So, so I understand that, but my, to answer your question, it's like, you know, I think, I hope it is like pitch perfect because I think people had, um, an expectation of what they thought pitch perfect was where it was like, it's like a bunch of like young ladies and they're singing acapella, you know, like not for me. And to me, that, that, it has always been, I wrote it like it's a comedy that has music in it. Like to me, it was a college comedy. So that's why I think like when, when it went um, to home video, <laughs> that it, you know, people found it. And then you had like, you know, you had like some dude on a couch that his girlfriend's like, let's watch Pitch perfect. And, the, and he's like, Oh no. Oh, Oh, well, this is pretty funny. This is different than what I thought it was. And I'm hoping that that happens for blockers because, um, I, well, I think there's like a bunch of teenagers who weren't able to see the movie because they weren't of age. Um, but then I think that there's like, you know, like the adults are just like, oh, it's just this like whatever comedy and that they'll sit there and they'll watch it and they'll be like, oh, this is fun. This is funny. This is super funny. Oh, uh, that, you know, like uh, it's good storytelling too or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, that a lot of people, that it blows up in that way. Yeah, no. And I think... You saw this with your mom. You saw this with your mom. Do you envision this as something that like parents should watch with their teenage children at home? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I think they. I feel like they should watch it. Like if if I think like a kid should watch it in their bedroom or something, and then like and then like parents in the living room or something. Like they maybe they should watch it at the same time, but not in the same room together. <laughs> We talked before about your experience as, you know, as a woman directing sort of a, a an R-rated comedy and how that's a little unusual in, in when you were doing it, which was not that long ago. But it feels like uh, there has been such a sea change in opportunity in just the last few months, six months, eight months, something like that. Are you feeling that as at all as you're eyeballing future project that there really has been a sea change in terms of um, what women are being quote unquote allowed to do in Hollywood? Um, yeah, I do feel like I, I can't speak for the numbers of women that are getting offers. I can only speak for myself since blockers has come out. I'm certainly getting offered a lot of uh, directing gigs um, uh, and, and having a, a, some kind of sense of power and deciding which, what I want to do next. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and of all different kinds, which has been so great for me. Like, I mean, not, I'm not just, I'm not getting like a bunch of romantic comedies or anything like that. Um, I'm getting like, you know, uh, action movies offers and, you know, like um, sort of like sci-fi stuff, which is so amazing. Um, and I, you know, so I, I think, I think that's great. And I hope that that continues. And I hope that that's happening for more, um, for more than just myself, you know, like, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know if there's been any real true actual change in the amount of women getting directing gigs. I, I don't know, like, you know, what it looks like, especially for directing like studios or directing, um, uh, directing pilots for television, uh, that those numbers increase, um, which is great. Uh, but they were so grim. Uh, those num the, the numbers increasing, like is a good step forward, but, you know, but it needs to like really if for the, for the tide to really change the power needs to change. And, and so, uh, you know, like, and, and I, I, I'm finding myself having this sort of new level of pressure, which is like, 
you know, your sophomore album, like can't suck, you know, like, like you gotta, you gotta like prove yourself again. And, and you know, you don't want to be a flash in the pan. You really gotta, gotta step up and be, and be great. Um, so I'm, I'm like trying to make sure that that, you know, that that's true (laughs) for myself. (laughs) Well, no pressure at all, but are you, do you, are you wanting to do another comedy or are you going to do one of these sci-fi action adventure properties that are being floated your way? And I'm going back and forth, but there's like, there's a project that I, um, that I'm writing that I love so much and it hasn't been greenlit and I haven't been attached to direct it, but like that, that's what I would love. And, uh, so that's what I'm, I'm working toward right now. And then I'm working on a bunch of TV stuff, um, that I, I know I'll direct, um, some of, some of that stuff. So I don't go past dramedy. Like, and I would, I would be super excited to do sci-fi or action. I especially love, like there's a, a, a TV show that I'm about to pitch. That's a, a, a an action comedy uh, show, but the, I think the only thing, and it's, I, I'll, I'll never say never, uh, but where I probably wouldn't ever do probably is a straight up drama because I think life is too short and <laughs> I got to be laughing. Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Like I really give it to those who can like stay in such hardship and sadness for so long. <laughs> like, uh, it, it'd be tough. Yeah. It'd be tough to do. <laughs> Fair enough. And then I wanted to ask you, this is this is like sort of a silly, silly award season question, but you know, you've you have a Peabody Award, you've been nominated for Emmys, presumably you've been to other award ceremonies. Do you have a favorite award ceremony that you've been to? What's like the most enjoyable party of all the award ceremonies? Oh, interesting. Um, well, the most fun I, I've ever had was um there was the Emmys that uh, Jimmy Fallon hosted. And if you ask Tina Fey, I don't know if I remember all these years ago, but like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, uh, they called it the night of the drunken moms. Um, <laughs> and I didn't have kids then, but like, like everybody got like, like Tina got drunk and Amy got drunk. And um, you know, there, there was just like a bunch of, a bunch of ladies. And I had sort of started this like dance party around Lauren Michaels. Um, where I like started dancing on this, like, uh, on, uh, on this booth. Uh, <laughs> and it just, it just sort of created this amazing, super fun, ridiculous, fun party, uh, uh, where we, we just danced all night long. I think Amy actually broke her toe, uh, jumping from one side of the booth to the other and like hitting maybe like some ice or something, uh, on the table. Um, so, but that, that was like the most fun, the golden globes. I've only been, to, I've been to a couple of times and that is a really like, I mean, people always say this, but the golden globes are so fun. <laughs> uh, you just, especially if, when you're like an outsider looking in and you're just kind of getting, you're, you're pretty close to all the wattage, all the, all the star, the star power. Right. All right. Well, uh, we here at Little Gold Men have have our have our own mini campaign that we really want blockers to get in. Um, the category we've picked is screenwriting because that's usually where comedy has the best uh, bet, right? In in the award season chatter is, uh-huh. is screenwriting. So we are all here quietly or loudly stumping for blockers in the screenwriting category. So hey, you'll, I love you'll it. Be, 
you'll be hearing from us cheering for you. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it, Kate. Thank you. So nice to talk to you. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks, as always, for listening. Please keep finding us on Apple Podcasts, telling your friends, leaving reviews, all of that stuff. You can find us all at VanityFair.com, and we're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich, Richard. Rye Laws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth, and happy Independence Day to all. We'll be back next week to talk about the Emmy nominations, so getting back into award season with a bang. Bang.